Hello and welcome to Acts of Pod. My name is Brandon Chu. I'm the host of the show. Acts of Pod is a bi-weekly podcast that talks about legal and insurance news, making headlines. This week we talked about Kobe Bryant's very tragic helicopter crash and some of the implications for the parties involved from the manufacturer to the operator and uh, everybody in between. So I hope you enjoy the show. If you want to hear more about our podcast, check us out on LinkedIn or stream us on iTunes at Acts of Pod. Thanks again and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to Acts of Pod. I am your host, Brandon Shu, and with me today are John Wackman and Christy Menon. Say hello, guys. Hello. Hello. John and Christy are from Nyland Johnson Law Firm here in Minneapolis. I am with Christensen Group, insurance broker here. We thought today, as our kind of initial kickoff launch into this new pod, we would talk a little bit about the Kobe Bryant helicopter debacle crash is obviously very, very tragic and sad. You know, we're hoping and sending our thoughts and prayers to his his family and loved ones and everybody else. How we wanted to come from this today was there's quite a few areas that, you know, could potentially have legal and insurance repercussions just based on some of the, you know, negligent behavior and, and things that went on during the course of these few minutes or hours where this accident happened. So we thought we'd kind of take you through what we know and then maybe dive a little bit into some of the exposure that any of the parties involved with the, obviously, with the exception of the victims might have here. So with that being said, I kind of kick off and, you know, John and Christy, feel free to jump in with whatever detail I might be missing. But this is essentially what we know today about this instance. It was reported on that the helicopter was seen going through very intense, thick fog and clouds during the time that it was flying at the time of the accident. And the helicopter lacked the essentially warning instrumentation to detect different terrains, including the ground, uh, apparently. It was also not certified to fly in poor visibility. From what we gather, this is a fairly common practice, flying, not, you know, not allowing your fleet to fly in poor visibility, particularly for transportation-related helicopter fleets. These guys were known for flying around celebrities, for making treks back and forth. This, this was not some sort of emergency vehicle fleet or anything like that. They were giving people tours and, and transporting them from A to B. The intention, I'm sure, was not to fly in you know difficult terrain. It was to fly on nice sunny days when elements were good. Part of the reason why they didn't have this certification was because, frankly, it would cost more to have it. And one of those costs reported on during in some of the uh, New York Times and other articles that I've seen would be insurance costs. That's a pretty crucial element to this. And then, you know, just from the uh, the helicopter itself, it, this was a Sikorsky 776B, apparently, with uh, a history of having eight accidents over the course of 26 years from the, the manufacturer's perspective. It looks like there's been a, a few successors or a few people that have owned this Sikorsky brand over the last few years. And John, I think you might have had some more information on that. Yeah, I, I know at one point, uh, Boeing was an owner most recently and currently it's owned by Lockheed, which, you know, but who's responsible for a 1991 
version is is unclear at this point. You know, and a couple points that are of importance that have come out is, you know, there is an eyewitness who was drinking coffee and heard the helicopter struggling a bit. It sounded unusual to him just right before the accident, which is going to be a key to our discussion today. And as we're recording this, the National Transportation Safety Board has not issued a a preliminary report, but they have released some information, including that the helicopter appeared to be sort of falling quickly right before the accident. So that would again suggest there could be something with the helicopter or it could be just be the pilot was trying to make a maneuver. We really don't know that at this point. On top of that, it looks like this pilot had plenty of experience. He was transporting lots of celebrities and high-profile people. Kobe Bryant was obviously one of his clients. He, he'd been flying since 1998, been flying this particular helicopter frequently. And in fact, I think the day before he did the same route. So he was kind of the guy, I guess, in Los Angeles, Orange County area to be doing this sort of work. So certainly I think that plays a, a big element into this too. And just how his experience, confidence and everything else played a role in this accident. But that's kind of the groundwork in terms of what happened. And obviously what we know the result is nine people were fatally killed during this this accident. Uh, sounds like the helicopter was falling at a rate of, what was it, John, 2,000 feet a minute? Yes, right, right as the last minute before it crashed. So obviously very, very sad, dramatic situation here. But from an analysis standpoint, I mean, you guys jump in here, but I, I think there are a lot of different things to talk about. The first thing that I would look at here is this Island Express Helicopters is the helicopter fleet operator, essentially, that employed the pilot. I think looking under the hood here is is probably a good place to start. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts of questions that come to mind in terms of how long they've been in business. What's that look like? Brandon mentioned, you know, the history of prior incidents or accidents with this helicopter. And then obviously the question of what kind of insurance coverage they had is going to be some of the really critical issues. And there have been some reports that there's a history of some safety related issues with this company. Now, my understanding, it was under a previous owner. It changed hands maybe seven, eight years ago, something like that. And so those predate the current owner, but there's a history here of issues with regard to safety. And just from the insurance coverage side, if there's two switches, two elections here, you can either have the instrumentation or not. And having the instrumentation typically causes an increase in premium. It leads me to believe, without saying that a copy of their policy, that there is an exclusion for uh, any of their fleet helicopters flying in conditions where visibility is poor. Otherwise, there would not be an increase in premium because it would be covered either way. So I have to expect here that there is a coverage issue that would come up in the event that Island Express Helicopters was was sued during this aftermath. As you said at the outset, I mean, this is a tragedy and not maybe comfortable to talk about sort of insurance coverage and lawsuits, but when things settle down, it's almost inevitable there's going to be one. Island Express is certainly the most obvious target for a lawsuit, but, you know, given their insurance situation as well as just the number of fatalities and victims here, there's going to be others that 
people want to look at. You know, Christy, who else would you, do you think that uh, a plaintiff's attorney would be looking at to potentially sue? One of the things that I read shortly after this incident was an article that was talking about actually a quite similar incident involving a similar type of helicopter. And that was the one that related to a helicopter crash. It was a Black Hawk helicopter in August, uh, August 25th of 2017. And that was during a training exercise off the coast of Yemen. The Motley Rice Law Firm actually filed a complaint Uh, in association with that accident in August 23rd of last year. So that's active litigation that's pending right now and gives us at least a lens into what some of the potential claims and who some of the defendants might be. So in that particular case, Lockheed Martin is one of the defendants, Savorsky Aircraft Corp, uh, GE, who uh, had a part in manufacturing the engine, Hamilton Sunstrand Corp., which is a subsidiary of United Technologies Corp., and then Boeing. So there's a long list of co-defendants in that case. And with respect to the legal claims, there's everything from negligence to strict liability to breach of warranty and wrongful death. So I think that at least gives us an idea of what a future lawsuit might look like in connection with this, this accident. What about product liability here? We have a 1991 manufactured helicopter, Sikorsky. From what I just heard from both you and reading, it sounds like there have been a variety of essentially owners of this brand or this helicopter. It sounds like Lockheed is the current. How does that play in from a successor liability standpoint? Well, that will be something they have to work through in a lawsuit is... You know, as a company gets bought and sold, the issue of liability is part of the purchase. You can either assume the liability or you can say, we aren't responsible for anything that came before the time that we purchased the company. So that, you know, in the other lawsuit Christy just mentioned, you heard both Boeing and Lockheed were defendants. It's probably unlikely that both end up being defendants because probably one of the two is responsible or maybe some yet another third entity. That will be, you know, typical situation is a plans attorney is not going to know. So they're going to name everybody that they potentially might be at fault for this or might have the liability responsibility, and then they'll have to wade through it in the course of the litigation. So I think that I think you'll see when, when a lawsuit is filed arising on this, similar names of the defendants, who, as you can tell, are all sort of deep pockets, which is what a plaintiff's attorney is looking for. They're looking for insurance coverage, uh, insurance policies or just uh, large companies that can can pay for big damages that occurred here. Yeah, and I think on top of that, might have to start looking at the actual purchases that occurred over that period of time, whether they were stock purchases or asset purchases. In the case of an asset purchase, was there some sort of discontinued products policy that was put in place, you know, obviously from an insurance perspective, that would cover the seller of the, you know, the the asset for product liability litigation moving forward. I think it's going to be a probably a deep dig in the event that litigation happens here because there's going to be some time and documents to sort through in terms of what policies at least are on the hook. I, I don't think it'll be as difficult to determine, you know, what companies are on the hook, but finding the insurance policies, I think it could become pretty complicated. 
And another element of the product liability angle is given the age of of the helicopter, 1991, typically in a product's liability lawsuit, you look at was the product effective when it left the hands of the manufacturer? So when Sikorsky left their control and went in into the original owner, was there a defect in the product? Well, that was you know decades ago. So this thing has been maintained and probably gotten a replacement engine along the way and all sorts of things. So when you look at that, so there's been a lot of maintenance to this thing, maybe some changes to the helicopter. Can you tie it back to the original manufacturer? Was there, you know, did they change something so it's really not like it was when it left the hands of Sikorsky or is it really something else where they could say, hey, changes were made, so we're not responsible anymore. This isn't really our product. We shouldn't be held responsible for its current condition. The original engine manufacturer may or may not be in play here because I do think there's probably a different engine they they put in at some point in the last you know thirty years. Well, and that question will be asked not only with respect to the design of the helicopter or the component parts like the engine, but also with respect to the warnings. You know, in in the other lawsuit I mentioned earlier, there was also a failure to warn claim. So I think it's very likely that that will be part of any future lawsuit here as well. We're speculating a bit, but somebody was maintaining this aircraft. I don't know if it was the helicopter company or whether they contracted with an outside entity who would do helicopter-related maintenance. So that would be another potential avenue is to say if somebody didn't keep the engine up to par, then that party could be responsible. So there's a whole host of potential parties at fault, and all of them will you know, they'll try to paint with a broad brush and bring as many potential defendants in as possible. From a legal perspective, I mean, how does the maintenance interact with what, I I don't know what California's laws are in terms of a statute of repose on product liability. Most states don't have them, but uh, I don't know if California does or not. But in the event that they did, does the fact that this is a large piece of equipment that requires maintenance offset some sort of claim or defense of uh, statute of repose defense? I think it would because, you know, I think Sikorsky or the manufacturer of the helicopter would say as long as it's properly maintained, you could use it for decades. A statute of repose basically comes in and says, hey, if a product's too old, you can't bring a product liability claim. It's unusual in most states nowadays, but for aircraft of any type, I mean, the airplanes, helicopters, they're used for decades. It's routine, keep the shell, and they replace lots of things on airplanes all the time. And so Boeing, who makes airplanes, would say, as long as you keep these up, you know, when you're investing a tremendous amount of money to buy it, you can use this thing for decades and decades. And I, I think, of course, you take the same position. They're not going to say, boy, you, you have to stop using our helicopters after 10 years or 15 or 20. As long as you maintain it, you should be able to use it for a long, long time. It's a little bit different than a consumer product. It's, it's big, big, inst- big piece of equipment. The other element here would be the kind of the safety procedures that that went into play um, from both the express helicopters. I mean, it's clearly against their permitting process they, they or their licensing processes. They can't fly in this sort of weather condition. So 
what processes do they have in place to make sure that, you know, one of their pilots doesn't take off? I mean, is this something that the pilot is controlling? I mean, I know none of us here are experts in helicopter fleet operations, but it, it seems like a pretty obvious question. You know, why were these people allowed to leave in the first place? Yeah, I think it's clear that there is going to be a very deep dive into those exact issues, and there will be probably a very long-term investigation to try to figure out what process was in place and was it followed? Was there written documentation, electronic documentation? And ultimately, was it the pilot's decision-making or were there others at the company that were responsible? Those, I'm sure, are issues that are going to be looked at very closely and it's, it's probably going to take a very long time to get to the bottom of those. Another potential angle is whether the helicopter had to get approval from, say, the air traffic controller to go. Reports are that both the L.A. City Police as well as the L.A. County Sheriff's Department had grounded all their helicopters that day because of the conditions. Um, That should have been known, I would assume, to any air traffic controller. But whether they, you know, approved or had to approve this flight or not is, is unknown. There have been reports that they did get clearance to take off, but to sue somebody like the, an air traffic controller, you know, which is a governmental entity, it creates other issues of immunity. There's lots of immunities uh, that apply to government entities that are doing their normal functions so that people can't just sue the government all the time. So it's often hard to get around those immunities as long as they're doing their job you know, even if they make a mistake in judgment, you often cannot sue the governmental entities. So an air traffic controller is probably not going to be a very lucrative avenue for a plaintiff's attorney. Under that kind of line of thinking, in cases where there is negligence on a government entity or air traffic control, I mean, then there's no other parties involved. Is it normally just, okay, this didn't work and we're done? Or is there government funds set up for victims? Or how does that normally work? I actually, I have an active case right now where it's not the exact instance that you just mentioned where they're the only defendant. Obviously, in in my situation, they're more of a potential co-defendant. They're currently an involuntary plaintiff at this point. But when you start to think about, I think from a plaintiff's perspective, the value of having a government entity that is subject to some sort of cap in your case, there are a lot of different things that you want to weigh. There's the pros, right, might be, okay, well, I have access to some amount of money, even if it's capped. There can be a lot of cons associated with that as well. I mean, most of the time, you know, the plaintiff's counsel will be looking for one party, or maybe it is more than one, but as a target. Sometimes um, having additional parties can just complicate the case or make it a little bit more accessible for multiple co-defendants to sort of point the finger at each other. In the governmental immunity context, I mean, it's almost a certainty if you sue a government entity that they will make a case an early motion to dismiss based on their immunity. So to follow up on what Christy was was saying is that that kind of bogs down the case because they bring the motion and everything sort of grinds to a halt, you know, and sometimes entities have liability caps. So, you know, they can vary, but sometimes they're, you know, say $200,000. So then in the context of a case like this, you say, is it really worth it if our possible recovery is, say, a, a couple hundred thousand given the immense damages and the possibility, almost the near certainty, that they're going to bring a motion to dismiss the case, which you have to fight, 
it will cause everything to be put on hold. So you have to weigh that as a plaintiff's lawyer. Is it really worth it to go after the, the government? And especially because, you know, in this case, the air traffic controller, they don't know all the details probably of the route they're going to take because you don't have a flight plan and all those things. So, you know, it, it's just going to create a lot of issues of fact that you have to determine and discover to try to prove a case against the government when you have uh, probably many more viable defendants than they are. Absolutely. It's early on here. We're only a couple weeks, a week after the accident occurred. There's probably no good in, you know, speculating, you know, what might happen here. But I assume that we're probably, this isn't the last that we've heard about this situation or about Island Express helicopters. It's, I think it's also fair to note that they suspended their operations on the 30th. Now, I don't know if that was for their own personal bereavement or or whatever it was, because I'm sure it shook everybody up over there too. I think it's fair to assume that there's going to be some more scrutiny here. For sure. And I think as the NTSB report, preliminary report, and then, you know, more final reports get issued, I think that's going to have a tremendously important impact on the course of how this plays out because the NTSB does a great job and the FAA of, of recreating what happened. It's difficult in, in aircraft cases because the parts are so damaged in a try to determine whether it was pilot error, whether it was the, the uh, aircraft, the helicopter, etc. But they do a great job of, of making those determinations. So I think the report will really con- uh, control the direction of this matter. I'll just say, you know, from reading the complaint associated with the case that was filed in federal court in Georgia, it was very clear that they were able to get very specific information about the crash. You could just tell from the detail that was pled in the complaint that they had gathered a lot of very specific information about the component parts and exactly how things had been in operation and working in connection with each other just prior to uh, that crash. I could see one last scenario here, and it's probably unlikely just given I don't think there were any bystanders hurt or anything like this during the crash, but is there witnesses to the accident for some sort of PTSD claim or, or something? Maybe that's the wrong verbiage, but that, that might occur from somebody witnessing what happened. Claims you hear about are things like negligent infliction of emotional distress. Like you are emotionally harmed by an incident, but in most states, the law is you have to be an imminent risk of actually being hurt. If the helicopter narrowly missed you, then maybe you'd have a claim. But I don't think that's the facts here. So even if somebody happened to have witnessed it from afar and would obviously be traumatized to see something like that, you don't have a legal claim to pursue. Mm. I think that kind of wraps up our analysis. I think this struck everybody pretty hard when this happened. You know, he's a very, Kobe Bryant is a very uh, public figure that's done a lot of you know, a lot of good for a lot of different people, you know, including the game of basketball. And, you know, he's become kind of a business tycoon after he left the game, too. So he's, you know, he has, he's obviously had a big impact on a lot of people's lives. We thought that it was relevant to talk about it just because of the fact that it had so many potential exposures to so many different people and industries and companies. It just kind of really fit well in terms of what we like to cover on this podcast, which is, you know, digging into claims, lawsuits, insurance coverage disputes that that are really impacting or influencing 
you know, the news headlines or people's daily lives and behaviors that are in this 24-hour news cycle. So we thought it was important and that's why we covered it, but we, we certainly understand that there is an emotional response to this situation that happened. And obviously families that were impacted are, you know, going through a lot right now. We have our thoughts and prayers going out to them. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Acts of Pod. Brandon Chu, John Wackman, and Christy Menon signing off. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Acts of Pod. I'm your host, Brandon Chu. If you're interested in more content, check us out on the web at actsofpod.com or check us out on LinkedIn where most of our updates are pushed through. And of course, you can stream us on iTunes.